Hello, hello, hello. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Dwayne Otley. Uh, this is a podcast that, oh, fine. This is a podcast, Mr. Steve, it's informed our listeners on topics that affect the everyday person. We are the Common Sense, because we use Common Sense right now. Uh, this podcast, this is Sunday, February 5th. Uh, we're going to talk about why Republicans hate women. Policing in America. Uh, Republicans ousted Omar off the committee. Uh, Chinese controlling Jamaica. Bill Barr, abuse of power. Marjorie Taylor Greene making a fool of herself. Uh, the Florida AP pass. Another George Santos probe. Debt ceiling fight. And... Uh, uh, let's say this fun fact in VR history and a Chinese balloon that skirted across America. So let's get with it. Rider 2008 bringing us in to this episode uh this is a common sense podcast this is Dwight Otley again rate us review us follow unfollow comment feedback uh you can give us feedback at the common sense party pod at gmail.com also on instagram <coughs> oh excuse me oh that's a fine you can we're also on tiktok uh, give us five stars, give us four stars, give us three stars, give us two stars. If you don't give us any stars, I can assume that I'm doing it perfectly. Um, our first story tonight is why Republican Republicans hate women. Um, take inside. Oh, hold on one second. <coughs> oh, excuse me. That is a fine. I need not to do that. Um, take into fact that they killed abortion rights and they just don't like women in power. So check us out. Thank, thank you and, and thank you for yielding. Uh, respectfully, if my Republican colleagues want to talk about hypocrisy, they should look no further than their party's full embrace of Donald Trump. Mr. Trump had thousands of conflicts of interest, which the gentle lady mentioned some of them. But this is a, a report uh, that documents over 3,400 conflicts of interest. He promised a firewall between his business and his presidency, but he broke that promise 
and accumulated 3,400 conflicts of interest so far. The conflicts include visits to Trump properties by foreign government officials, taxpayers spending at Trump businesses, and Trump's own blatant promotion of his businesses. And this is, uh, goes into great detail. I ask unanimous consent to place it in the record. So done. I, I would say that President Biden and the Democrats are clear on our priorities, and we are delivering results for the American people. The lowering of cost of prescription drugs will help every American family. The Inflation Reduction Plan also capped the cost of insulin at $35 a month, saving lives, lowered the cost of health care, and combated climate change, investing in renewable clean energy, and moving our, our country to electric cars, electric postal fleet that'll get us off of fossil fuels, one of the biggest uh, polluting items in our climate. And tackling gun violence, particularly important to my, my city of New York. We passed the first uh, uh, gun violence protection, cracking down and making the trafficking in guns a felony. And, and uh, we, we also, let's, let's talk about a woman's right to choose protecting women's uh, reproductive rights. I would say there's no democracy if women can't make decisions about their own health care. Yet the they, they Republicans want to come in, they must hate women. They not only want to take away a woman's right to make decisions about her own health care, including your own reproductive health care, they want to take the steps to ban uh, access to, uh, to, to birth control. It's been reported. Then they want to make, uh, they first talk about state rights, now they want to make a federal law. A federal law limiting women's ability to make choices about their own health care. Uh, this is a uh, hypocrisy at the greatest heights, and, and uh, I would take uh, the Democrats' priorities are helping American people, and they are led by our President Joe Biden. Uh, my time has expired, and I now uh, turn, oops, Representative Sessions has joined us. I now. Yeah, she was kind of long-winded, but they really hate women. Yeah, that was just an example of what they did uh, with at the federal level. But check this out. This is at the state level. There are some very serious things that are in this rule package that I think we should be debating. But instead, we are fighting again for women's right to choose something, and this time is whether she, how she covers herself and the interpretation of someone who has no background in fashion, because again, it is an, and this isn't a shot, it's inappropriate to wear sequins before five o'clock telling me that I can't wear a crispy, good St. John sweater if it has too many buttons. No, this is not middle school. It's not children playing and talking about dress codes. That's Missouri State House of Representatives. And they started the new session, so they started off with a bang, talking about a dress code, specifically for women, because, you know, they, they, you know they're going to wall out unless you let them know how to dress. Uh, most of the women, of course, as you saw also the woman behind her, they're all frustrated by this entire thing as she speaks truth. That woman speaking there, her name is Rachel Prouty, State Senator Rachel Prouty there. Uh, we're going to get to more of her speech, but this is what these new imposed rules look like before she jumps back in. While previous rules said that dresses or skirts or slacks worn with a blazer or, uh, or sweater and appropriate dress shoes or boots 
were allowed to be worn by female lawmakers, Representative Ann Kelly, Republican, one of the co-sponsors of this bill, said on Wednesday that women needed to wear jackets on the floor as it is, quote, it is essential to always maintain a formal and professional atmosphere. Okay, uh, so this uh, debate originated in last year's session. I guess they were trying to squeeze that in there. Well, some people felt that it was uh, only a select few female legislators that weren't dressing up to their standards and everything. So let's go back and hear from Representative or uh, State Senator Proudy talking about how horrible this is. Let's let her say more. I want you all to pay particular attention because there's going to be times on this floor where there are things that should not require debate and comment. I contend that these are one of these things. I spend $1,200 on a suit and I can't wear it in the people's house because someone who doesn't have the range tells me that it's inappropriate. That's not why any of us were elected, Mr. Speaker. None of us. I urge us to vote no on this because it's ridiculous. And also, congratulations, I'll keep that to myself, to any of us who may be with child. Um, you surely don't have enough or have the money off the salary that we make to go buy a bunch of, of new clothes or tailored clothes. And I hope that you're able to continue to wear your cardigan um, and vote on behalf of the people who sent you here. Again, this is what they're discussing. Uh, I would uh, ask anyone that lives in Missouri as they voted for folks, as their local uh, officials, what they voted for why they voted for certain folks was it because they said you know what i took a glance at the state live feed of the house proceedings and the, and the state senate proceedings and you know what? i saw a woman's arm and i said oh my god these people cannot be serious I, I get the feeling about zero people voted based off of that but these legislators are doing it for that reason there's more to this but uh yes uh you've had plenty of jobs some professional ones as well have you had this type of dress code uh rules put in place on you no, I haven't had a dress code since high school, since junior high and high school. And even then, it was, it was pretty lenient, you know. I guess this, what I'm wearing now, isn't considered professional because it's just a dress with no jacket over it. You know, this is just an example of Republicans not having anything legitimate to talk about, right? This is what they do. And it's mentally exhausting for people. And that's what they want, right? They waste people's time and they waste people's tax dollars. They alienate and they infuriate entire demographics of people, in this case, women, and they create problems out of nothing, and then they pretend to solve the problems that they created. Yeah. It's, it's really tired. Yeah, you know what's funny is that the older I get, the more I understand the need for a dress code, right? <laughs> just, the, just the general idea that you don't show up to a place that you're trying to work, collaborate, get stuff done, extra schlubby. Like, we don't want to see you in your pajamas and flip-flops in our professional environment. Like, that, that's it, though. Like, as long as you don't look like a schlub, and obviously none of these women were planning on doing that and, like, enforcing, like, these weird button rules is, is weird but like while i understand the need for a professional decorum in your appearance and you want to feel like you're doing something and you you know you at least took the time to put some kind of adult clothes on for the for the moment like this strict enforcement is is kind of it's craziness i i would like to know the actual uh motivations behind it because there's something. It's not because they see a woman's arms and go, oh, my God, um, she may not be able to read I this I wish bill. someone would try to count my buttons and tell me it's the wrong number of buttons. Like, how would that conversation even go? I can't imagine. People have this conversation with their parents when they're 13, 14 years old. When you're 13 years old, yeah. I mean, that, I think that's the point where it kind of it stops. It happen after that, yeah. Yeah, it's well, crazy. Man, I'll, I'll say this about dress codes. When, when I was younger, because, you know, my mom's a, a Haitian immigrant, like, anytime I wear sneakers to, like, a party, I'm talking about like sixth seventh grade like she was like 
you're clearly not dressed up. You're not wearing shiny shoes right now. <laughs> you know, like, that was, like, a thing. It's like, no, Mom, like, no kid in the 6th and 7th grade is going to wear church shoes to a birthday party. That's not a thing. But you, these were literal conversations that we would have. Um, one more thing before we go to the more of the arguments that happened, because it was more juiciness that happened on the floor over this whole thing. When I went to D.C., I've been there multiple times, but then I just kind of sat around and observed the D.C. folks in the Capitol area and legislators and all that stuff. Staffers, representatives, officials. The, the I was like, I think there's like a dress code the other way. 97% of the women will walk around in these, no patterns, but it was plain dresses that were about knee high, but all were, arm, were sleeveless. Every one of them. I was like, this is really weird. It's like this it's like a standard dress code, almost like an you know unofficial dress code. Maybe it's just a professional look. I don't know how they would try to find a way to regulate that when it comes to being the normal way people do stuff. I don't know if there's something about Missouri or who knows. It's, it's probably it's, not as many equinoxes in Missouri, mm -hmm. man. It, the, those women in D.C. are jacked, Jr. They got to show off. You need nice arms for a Get up, yeah. Well, uh, another representative, <laughs> you though. Your, your triceps. <laughs> you got to work on them first. Another representative, though, Ashley on own. She had a, a back and forth uh, with Ann Kelly on the house floor of this whole thing. This is back in Missouri again. Let's watch this. This was fun. You know what it feels like to have a bunch of men in this room looking at your top, trying to decide whether it's appropriate or not? Are we going to have um, Dana be checking our our um, tags for whether it's a, a knit blend or a polyester blend or the silk count? I mean, this is this is ridiculous. Lady, you're right. It is ridiculous. It is absolutely so absurd. So why are you doing it? That we even have to talk about it on the house floor. I agree. In so why did you bring it up? Chamber. Why should we talk about something like this? It is absolutely ridiculous. You would you think. You bought this you to the think, floor, lady. You, you would tell think, me. You would think that all you would have to do is say, dress professionally, and women could handle it. You would think elected would officials think. could handle that. You would think. But no, we're, we're walking around men, here in sequins and velveteen, men, to the lady's point. So what is appropriate, and why do you get to decide? We need to get over the sequins. That's ridiculous. I'm not sure this other lady's point about why are we talking about this? You brought it up. Crazy lady. You brought this whole thing up. I, I, I can always talk about this. What do you, more, more about this back and forth and this discussion about why they're talking about this and why are we doing this? You did it, though. Jr. I will never be over the sequins. I will say that much. I will never be over the sequins. But, it's, you know, all of this. It's really insulting to the members that these people have to serve with, right? People who ran really expensive and exhausting and, like, time-intensive political campaigns. They had political staffers who helped them get elected so that they could be there to serve their constituents, right? They made promises, and I'm sure they would love to keep to those constituents, but they won't be able to get anything done if they're talking about dress codes, right? This is just typical Republican obstructionism, and I don't know why it's tolerated and legitimized. It's going to make us all crazy. Well, we're already there, that's for sure. Uh, have you guys ever looked at uh, Jim Jordan in uh, the house? My man wears a jacket about 2% of the time. Always has his What is he normally? On. Just no no jacket? Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the do, you, do you guys remember what uh, Kristen um, Cinema was wearing when she did yeah. the sad scene? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we all remember. Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Green never has a sleeve on. You know, it's... It's stupid. It's not professional. Is the problem. Uh, so one other thing, though. So so by the way, um, 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 oh, and also anytime politicians do photo ops, it can be Democratic, uh, Republican, doesn't matter. When if they go to the border, 
Sleeves have to be rolled up on this on the suit gotcha. on the dress suit because that looks better for the photo op. We know this. Are they suddenly not professional? No, but this, these are all cues to show something. Else. But there was a bit of a compromise. Maybe you guys can relax on the sequence now. Let's go to graphic three here because the state house eventually did approve a modified version of Kelly's proposal. Well, she doesn't know why they're talking about it, which allows for cardigans as well as jackets, but it still requires women's arms <laughs> to be concealed. I, yeah. <sighs> That's the state of Missouri uh, um, legislators. So you can imagine the next thing that they'll be talking about as uh, as they go into their session to go through their unprofessional look of uh, their house. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, they are. Someone's in their feeling because it didn't look good or I don't want to make it racist, but it might have been a slender Anglo-Saxon who got upset because a curvy minority looked better than her. But I digress. But again, Republicans do not like women. All their policy is to hurt women, hurt children, hurt minorities, stuff like that. All right, moving forward. We're moving forward to policing in America. Yes, we all know that another black man has been killed on video. This one's more personal, but they're trying to say it's not racial because it was five black officers. I disagree because those black guys still kill a black guy and black and black crime is is uh is a myth yes they targeted i think they targeted terry nichols because the rumor is nichols dated one of the cops um ex-girlfriend or something like that so let's go to policing in america how would you describe the energy of the officers that pulled over tyree nichols uh on a scale of one to ten they were at a ten is that not police protocol? No, it's not police protocol. Um, I've been in this business for 36 years, and a lot of the aggression and, you know, the approach was over the top. The Memphis police chief telling NBC News her officers' actions were at a 10. And police chiefs across the country are saying the actions were unconscionable, unethical, and inconsistent with police training. Here now to discuss, Tracy Kazi, president of the Center for Policing Equity. She was on the force for 25 years. And Joanna Schwartz, UCLA law professor and author of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Tracy, officers know they're being recorded by their own body cameras. Can you explain why this still happens? You know, the body cameras were originally designed to hopefully bring more transparency. And what happens is officers get used to it. You get used to having it on your body. And so once you get used to it, you continue to move and do the things that you normally would do. And so, you know, as we see the horrific video from um, the last event, it's one of those things where you often wonder and you do ask yourself, what are you thinking? And what do you think is going to happen when someone sees this video? And I think what's also interesting about not just the body-worn camera is that there's also, you know, pole cams. So the city itself has its own cameras that's placed throughout, you know, Memphis. 
And without the videotape from that particular camera, I don't think we would have seen what we have seen. Joanna, what do you think? I agree. I also, having watched some of that video, get the impression that the officers on the scene were not aware or of, of, of the belief that they had done something wrong. They are joking with each other. They are talking with each other. Uh, and I, I agree, it's possible that they have forgotten that the video camera, uh, the body cameras are on. They may also, uh, in that moment, before they knew the extent of the damage that they had caused, believed that what they had done was not out of line. Really? I, 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 I'm just so gobsmacked. He, he, was, he was being brutally beaten. He's, he's pleading in despair for his mother. And they thought, well, this is, what we, this is what an officer does on a Tuesday? The officers, you can see in the video, are standing around, talking to one another, joking with one another uh, for, for minutes and minutes and minutes after this occurred. There was no one saying... What have we done? There was no one saying, we've got to get our story straight. There was no one saying, this is an emergency. What we see when we look at that video is a lot of officers who seem like they've been amped up and they're letting off steam and joking and laughing about what's happened. Tracy, I, I, just, I, I just keep thinking, what is this like? for you as someone who served in the force for 25 years, right? Police officers, these are the most respected people. When our children are little kids, it's the job they dream to have one day. Absolutely. And I can tell you, not just for me, but probably for thousands of officers across the country, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. You know, once again, here we are where we don't have trust in communities of color. And the interesting part of this, too, and I think for most folks who are watching, we're often surprised that all five of those officers were black. And I can tell you, as a retired black officer, it is just devastating, especially after decades of our own legitimacy being questioned and really trying to make sure that we are servants of the community, especially the communities where we come from. So just devastating, absolutely devastating. And not only that, you have to ask yourself, what, what are they thinking? What was going on? And I think that one of the questions that we're, you know, we're all waiting to hear is from these officers themselves, because we will not know until we have that conversation. And of course, that will take place when they, when they go to trial. So they're just absolute devastation. And that's all officers, because once again, we are struggling and struggling to make sure that we can build relationships and keep those relationships with communities. So it's just heartbreaking. Part of police culture is this idea of having each other's back, that thin blue line. Does that mentality sometimes lead to officers protecting one another when they shouldn't? Of course it does. I mean, we watched it. If you saw the video and you heard the joking and you already heard sort of the excuses being thrown out about what happened and how the stop, you know, engaged the way that it did. And that's the, the dangerous part of this, right? Because what we know in Memphis is they have a policy. They have a policy of de-escalation. They also have a policy to duty to intervene. And not one officer that was standing there did anything to intervene. And I think what is even more heartbreaking is watching how long it took for them to call for medical services. 
I mean, the time that went on as we're watching, you know, this young man fall over time and time again, being propped up against that car, it is just sickening. It certainly is. Tracy and Joanna, thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate it. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, another black man dies at the hands of the police. Even though it's black police officers, it's still a racist act because they thought they were above the law and it looks that that was personal. Uh, I really don't understand why, but it is what it is that when you get into a, when they get into law enforcement, they give bullies a gun and they give them the option to beat up people. They don't protect and serve. They just run rampant. They're, don't get me wrong. I come from a family of police officers. They are good cops. But sometimes they give the wrong people the guns. All right. Moving on. The Republicans again uh, came back with whataboutism and they removed Ileana Omar from from committee makes no sense just because she's Muslim and she's black and she's smarter than them Republicans hate women hypocrisy is rank in the Republican Party right now yesterday after voting to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee Republican Congressman Ken Buck was overheard in an elevator calling it the stupidest vote in the world according to roll call his fellow Republican Mike Simpson agreed and added that all it does is make Omar a martyr. And being the brave public servants that they are, they urge fellow passengers in the elevator to not let leadership know their thoughts. We won't do that. House Republicans are actively trying to gaslight the country into thinking that what Ilhan Omar did was on the same level as the, as the Republicans that Democrats removed from, from committees over a year ago. But it's not the same. Omar was criticized by both parties for playing into anti-Semitic tropes, including when she insinuated that Israel's allies in America were motivated by money. She did apologize for that tweet one day later. Meanwhile, Paul Gosar, who accused Omar of anti-Semitism, actually went to a pro-Hitler conference and later hung out with white nationalist Nick Fuentes with no apology. Even after public outcry, he spoke at the conference one year later. He claimed it was a miscommunication and said he was done dealing with Nick. But then a few months later, tweeted and deleted a documentary about Fuentes. No apology. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, she also went to that conference. Again, no apology. And she defended going. I'm joined now by Republican strategist and MSNBC political analyst Susan Del Percio and Dean Obadala, MSNBC daily columnist and host of Sirius XM's The Dean Obadala Show. Welcome to you both. So, Susan, are Republicans getting away with it? I mean, do you, do you think the American public actually conflates, conflates Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene with Ilan Omar, Eric Swalwell, and Adam Schiff? No, I mean, those who... Uh, according to Fox News, where 90% of they get their, their news from, I'll say yes. Pay very close attention, yes, but basically, 
they are going to get away with it, Michael. I don't like saying it, but that's the reality because this news is not as big of news as other things like the docu- classified documents. And more importantly for Democrats, like the job numbers that came out today. So they get away with it in the sense of the public probably won't really care about it too much. But when the when they want to bring it up and, and do pointed things to the Republicans, the Democrats will have it in their pocket, which is rightfully so, because it is disgraceful that she was removed from this committee. I have very little in common with the Congresswoman uh, politically, but this isn't, shouldn't be about politics. She is qualified to be there, frankly, as were the other two Congress members that were removed from committees. But, but to see on the floor, to see these Republicans actually vote to kick her off, it, they have no shame. I mean, and of course we say that all the time, so I don't know. Yeah, okay. we've kind of run through the sh- the shame uh, factor in all of this. So you know, Dean, that 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 sort of, I guess, in one sense, sort of begs the question of you know this idea of a Congresswoman Omar as a martyr. Um, what do you make of that uh, assessment by Congressman Simpson? She's not a martyr. She's stronger now than ever. Her speech yesterday on the floor was great. She was defiant, Michael. She said, "You're not going to silence her." This is a woman who lived in a war-torn refugee camp, came to America in her teens, and has moved up to be a member of the House of Representatives. Look, the GOP went after her for one reason, Michael, the same reason Donald Trump targeted her. They chanted, send her back at a rally of his in July 2019. It's not what she's about or what she says. It's who she is. She's black. She's a Muslim. She's an immigrant. She's a strong woman. She's all the things so much of the GOP base doesn't like rolled into one. That's what this is about. So... Congressman Buck can say this is the dumbest thing they've done. Not to Kevin McCarthy. Look at it. It took him 15 ballots to get elected. It took one to demonize and target a black Muslim woman, and they all got on board, all the Republicans. This plays well for the GOP base. And last thing, Michael, there are over 270 Republicans in the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. Of the 270 plus, how many are black women? Zero. And there's a reason why. Yep, Republicans don't like women, especially black women. I didn't know that no black woman was a part of the oh, Democratic Party, but I, I mean the Republicans, but I know it's part of the Democrats. <coughs> oh, that's a fine. Uh, excuse me, this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. At this point, we can put your business here to advertise or promote your product please contact us at the common sense party pod at gmail.com to nominate or promote your product on a weekly basis and this again is the common sense party pod i'm your host Dwayne hotly uh rate us review us like follow comment and give us feedback uh, give us four stars, give us five stars, give us three stars, give us two stars, give us any stars. I can assume if you don't give us any stars that I'm doing it perfectly. Uh, we are available on Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, TuneIn, and we're trying to get um Apple. Yeah, we're trying to get Apple one. 
one time or another we're trying to get Apple okay and we also on Spotify moving on oh we're moving on to uh, Jamaica giving away their stuff to to the Chinese uh, check this out Please explain how China has strategically taken over control of numerous African countries and Jamaica without the use of military force. What will their domination mean long term? Great question. I'll pause because it bothers me when I look at Africa and the Caribbean islands. And I just came back from Aruba. And I'll be going later on this year to Martinique, Carousel, and back to uh, Suriname in South America. But it bothers me when I look at the history of how we fought for liberation followed by independence in the Caribbean. Only to hand that independence back over to another race of people. So we fought for freedom from the white man. And now we're handing over that freedom to the yellow man. When I was in Jamaica, 2015, I keynoted National Heroes uh, Week, Irie FM and Ocho Rios and Marcus Garvey's back, back, uh, yeah, me and Muta Baruka, actually. And while I was in Jamaica, I heard all these rumblings about the Chinese. And I've been to Jamaica before and I've seen the Chinese, but in studying what they have done since my last visit, I was astounded and appalled to find out that they had made so much inroads into controlling and influencing the infrastructure of the Jamaican people. The Chinese built a road from Kingston, one side of the island, to the other side of the island. And in exchange for the roads that they built, the Jamaican government, unless this has changed since then, gave the Chinese total control over the total money that will be made by people using the Northwest or East-West Highway. Why would you give a foreign power complete monetary control of the tolls on this road that you know half of Jamaica going to be using? You're talking millions of dollars of revenue you're giving to the yellow man just because he built the road. In addition to that, the Chinese are building a, it's probably done by now, they were building at that time two schools and they were bringing Chinese educators over to help the Jamaican people educate black children. They built the children's hospital, which is supposed to be largely staffed with Chinese. They also gave the Chinese total control of uh, all tourism on both sides of that highway that goes from one side of the island to the other. I was also told that they gave the Chinese the right to drill in natural rainforests in the Jamaican, uh, on, on the Jamaican territory for Chinese exploitation. They've given them tax abatements and they also purchased, if I'm not mistaken, the port, the main port of Jamaica own the port. is owned by the Chinese. Exactly. If another race owns your port, that means they control what's coming in. They control what's going out. What about the drugs? What about the guns? What about the COVID? You don't know what them people bringing in. 
And you mean to tell me that the Chinese care so much about Jamaican people that they're not going to educate our kids and take care of their health? Chinese don't care about black folks. Go to China. Go to China and see how they treat black people in China. So to me, what I think this is, is the government of Jamaica, like so many African governments, so many other Caribbean governments have done, they've gotten in bed financially with the Chinese. The Chinese have studied the way the white man has practiced neocolonialism throughout Africa. And the Chinese has learned that these black leaders don't really care about their people. They're all about their pocket. So I'm going to do what the white man did, but I'm going to do it one time better. I'm going to offer them double the money. You let me take over this land right here, I'll get the white man offer you a million, I'm offering you three million. And I'm going to build your retirement home. And I'm going to pay for all your kids to go to college in China. You follow what I'm saying? And I'm going to give you a private military. So the Chinese have basically become neocolonialist 2.0. They're outdoing the Europeans. You follow me? And they're giving Caribbean and African leaders offers that they can't refuse. And guess what? When you abdicate on that loan that they give you, because all this is loan. These are not handouts. It's all loans. When you abdicate on the loan in that contract, you have to give them large concessions of land and large concessions of your economy. There's an African country right now. Is it Uganda? There is an African country who defaulted on their loan to the Chinese and they now own their national airport. I forget which, they own the airport now because they couldn't pay back the loan. The Chinese know what they're doing. The problem we have as African people is we tend to think anybody who's not white is a friend of ours. Nobody is our friend, not the Arab, not the Chinese, not the Latino, not the, except the African Latinos who identify with us, not the East Indians, not the Native Americans, we don't have friends. But black people have been seduced into this multiculturalism, which says the brown man is your friend, the yellow man is your friend, the red man is your friend. No, they're not. Black people don't have no friends. And my greatest fear about Chinese neocolonialism 2.0, my greatest fear about Chinese neocolonialism 2.0 is when the time for revolution comes. Because there will be a second revolution because you got to get rid of the Chinese. You would have to fight 10 times harder. When you fought to get the white man out in the 60s, in the 40s, in the 50s, it was a little easier because he don't have the numerical strength. The white man had to use other black people in his armies to fight blacks because they're only 10% of the world. They don't have enough. China is the most populous country on the planet Earth. They have a billion people, not to mention their reserves around the planet. Okay? Don't get me wrong. African people, we're two billion. We're the biggest. The problem is most of us identify something other than black which reduces our numbers i'm not african i'm multiracial i'm not african i'm latino i'm not african i'm samoan you follow so we are disintegrated based on these these names here's the point that i'm making because the chinese have the technology because the chinese have the manpower the war the second war for african independence the second revolution for African independence against Chinese neocolonialism 2.0 is going to be 10 times as bloody 10 times as long and it's going to requ require the sacrifice of, of 10 times as many people we will not be able to throw them out of Africa and throw them out of the Caribbean as easily as we did the whites and the whites wasn't easy that was a hell of a war so just multiply that by a hundred and that's what we will have to deal with with the Chinese the worst thing we're doing is giving them all this and it's being done through the politicians the politicians are doing it 
But here's three things that keeps Africa enslaved to the Chinese and the white man by virtue of their politicians. Number one, we have been distracted in America, the Caribbean, Africa, all over the world. It's a pan-African problem. We have been distracted from development with democracy. Everybody's focusing on who to vote for. You're not looking at the conditions. What's going to change whether he wins or he wins? Because guess who's financing both of them? The same people stealing your oil. Who's financing both of them? The same people stealing your gold. Who's financing both of them? The same people stealing your coltan. You follow me? So democracy is a joke. They play on black people to make you think you can have radical transformation without revolution. The reason the white man pushes democracy globally so hard is if there's ever a breakdown in the black man's confidence in democracy, the only alternative is revolution. So that's number one. Democracy is a distraction from development. Number two, when I travel, especially Africa, but it's true in the Caribbean also, black people are more concerned with their tribe being in control than they are with liberation from foreign control. Are you following me? I've seen it. So when the elections is coming up, it's not about freeing us from white supremacy or Chinese imperialism. It's about, are my people going to be the president? Is somebody from my tribe going to be the prime minister? And because they're more concerned about tribal imperialism than African independence, this democratic scheme that they run on black people continues because we're so petty and so small in our thinking. I just want to make sure his people don't get the presidency. I'm not even looking at the bigger picture. The white man knows this. The Chinese know this. So they come in, exploit, finance both sides, so no matter who wins, they get all the resources. And then the third issue, the third issue is most African leaders and Caribbean are foreign educated. They go to Britain for their education. They go to France for their education. They go to Belgium. They come to America for their education. And what did Dr. Carter G. Woodson say in Miseducation of the Negro? The college-educated Negro is seldom of any use to his race because the education he gets is an education that takes him away from identification with his people. So most of our African and Caribbean and American leaders are Negro-pean. They have an African body. They have a European mind. So the white man and the yellow man are controlling the black man through remote control by virtue of conscious control of the way that he thinks the entire thought process of the African leader. There's a few exceptions, but for most of them and the Caribbean, the entire thought process is that of a white man. How can we get free? All right, that's Dr. Umar. I uh, kind of agree with him, I kind of disagree because didn't he go to school also? But, hey, they do do um, destabilization in countries, so that is possible. Uh, yep. So that is how China is controlling Jamaica. So the next time you go to Jamaica, you probably see a lot of Chinese Jamaicans because they built a road in three years, I think. All right, moving on. Bill Barr, yes. Adriana Trump, he abused his power. No, no shockers here. 
Check it out. New heat on former Trump official Bill Barr. Take a look at the explosive New York Times report, which exposed how he punched this pressure scheme. Now, he held these check-ins every week with someone we told you about, his hand-picked prosecutor. He went abroad to press European officials. Barr's prosecutor never found the evidence for the deep state conspiracy theories they had. They didn't prove alleged crimes. They lost in court. And now there's questions of ethics facing Barr. He had even said at the start of the probe, when looking towards allied spies, both in Britain and CIA, that he suspected America's friends had somehow been targeting Donald Trump. Well, if you can't prove that, it sounds a lot like a conspiracy theory. No evidence there. Durham and Barr also pushed a narrative. And then he'd go on TV in the middle of his so-called open probe and say stuff like this. The evidence uh, shows that we're not dealing with just uh, mistakes or sloppiness. There was something far more troubling here. The president has every right to be frustrated because I think what happened to him was one of the greatest travesties in American history without any basis. Spin. And it's not adding up well for him. Now, Barr says that this thing was not started as a criminal investigation. He had a duty to find out what happened in the Mueller probe. But there's a difference between a duty to do the investigations, that's what DOJ does all the time, quietly, without TV interviews, and trying to set a goal in advance and then reverse engineer it to prove it. Now Barr is also trying to downplay what were those unusual meetings with the hand-picked prosecutor, saying they didn't break any regulations. But let me give you a little lawyer advice here. When you're accused of something, and instead of denying it or addressing it factually or substantively, you just say it didn't break a rule or a law, that's a sign that you already know you're in hot water. He didn't say that he wasn't regularly having scotch dinners with his hand-picked political buddy and traveling around the world like some sort of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure for weaponizing the DOJ, which is the very thing some House Republicans now say they want to accuse others of. No, he didn't say any of that. He just said, hey, I didn't break any rules. Well, that brings us to Andrew Weissman and a big question. Did he break any rules? An answer from someone who was literally Mueller's top person, FBI general counsel, and a respected prosecutor. I'm interested in the answer when we come back. Oh, you know what, Andrew? We're not coming back. You're here right now. I got confused. <laughs> you know, sometimes we do that, they call the TVTs, but, you know, juggling. All right, that's the question. Well, that the was question quite is. The cheese, then. Hey, you know, you can see it's like in our blood. No, the question remains, uh, A, did he break any rules? And B, when you look at that answer, does it tell you that he doesn't really want to get into this in any way, or is, am I overreading it? Well, let's just start with the did he break any rules. It really depends on what the it is, because Barr did so many things that were improper. Um, but if you're asking the question about, you know, just meeting with a prosecutor and having drinks with them, I mean, it clearly shows a lack of independence. Um, but that's not against the rules, and that could be done by somebody and be totally proper. That's not Bill Barr's sin. Um, Bill Barr's sins are so many and so varied, whether it is um, – intervening in the Roger Stone case, whether it's intervening in the Michael Flynn case 
situations where people were faced, many, many other defendants were facing the same situation, but he interfered and, and helped them in their case because they were friends of the president in ways that were completely legally antithetical to the position the department took with other people. That is a fundamental assault on the rule of law. Um, with respect to the, just the Durham investigation itself, remember the inspector general had done an investigation, a long one, into the very issue of whether the FBI was justified in opening its investigation. And they found that there was nothing wrong whatsoever. They had issues, by the way, in terms of the FBI, how it handled the investigation. But in terms of the predicate, the factual predicate for opening investigation, it was ample, and the inspector general had already determined that. So Bill Barr just didn't like the answer. Um, and then to go on TV and to suggest otherwise, when in fact, so far, to date, there has been no contrary evidence. It was entirely properly opened. Um, and then finally, this last piece that was reported in the New York Times about Italy, the idea of using that to have the public think that the criminal aspect had to do with the FBI and the opening of the investigation, when in fact the lead that they got from Italy was about Donald Trump himself. I mean, to me, that is just scurrilous um, to create that misimpression. Of course, I lived through a bar misimpression um, when he, he wrote the quote summary of our report that was, you know, I thought, completely misleading. So the, the question of, you know, what are Bill Barr, did he break any rules and laws? The answer is sort of, he certainly broke a whole series of rules about the independence um, and the objectivity of the Department of Justice. Yeah, you make so many important points, Andrew. One being that the prosecutorial interference in the sentencing of people who were clearly political allies of the president and may have actively tried to disrupt investigations, including one you were on, is a serious potential rule violation. The question is whether how it's whether how it's investigated. Then second, he's hiding behind these very legalistic, in the worst sense of the word, dodges about what he did in this redo. And with the power of the federal government and his willingness to bend the rules or further, they still didn't come up with anything. I mean, nothing. It's the opposite as well of Mueller in terms of how he was all constantly hyping it. Um, as you, I remind people, because it's really interesting, that Bob Mueller, who is a lifelong moderate Republican, basically, appointed by Republicans and then held over, picked you to be general counsel at FBI, correct? Yes. And that's a big job. He obviously had the professional, independent, nonpartisan trust in you to deal with all the intricacies there. And I think Americans have gotten a reminder last few years of how difficult that stuff can be. Uh, and then he remained confident in you to tap you in the Mueller probe. And one thing that, that I always noticed about Bob, and you said to me a long time ago, Andrew, um, anything you want to understand about intricate legal theories, you can understand by studying hip hop. And I've always appreciated your counsel on that. Uh, but the old saying, I ain't got to talk it because I live it. That's vintage Mueller. Didn't talk, sometimes with the frustration of people who want him to talk. Contrast that to this uh, Bill Barr saying, quote, I think at some point Durham will explain the genesis of the Russian interference claims and how it occurred and what's wrong with that. It was a review to get the story, and he got the story. Um, how do you contrast that to Mueller and the idea that Barr, even in his attempted defense, basically admits they wanted to tell a story, review a different independent pro, put out message spin or propaganda? Is that wrong? 
Yeah, that is absolutely wrong. And again, I just would like to remind our, our viewers that there is a public report that investigated the investigators. The um, Inspector General of the Department of Justice did just that. And that is a public report going through mm -hmm. chapter and verse of exactly why the investigation was begun and looking at whether it was proper both legally and within Department of Justice and FBI rules and found that it was entirely proper to open that investigation. Um, and if somebody who then proceeded to conduct the investigation, it didn't occur to me in the slightest that this was improperly uh, opened. Our job was to see what the appropriate conclusion is, but it's very often that you open in a, a case and some parts of it you find are meritorious and some parts you don't. It doesn't mean that it was improperly opened. And then it's very hard for me to contrast Robert Mueller to Bill Barr because, you know, that is, to quote Jen Psaki in a different context, she said, you know, things are apples and oranges, and she said, no, things are apples and orangutans. I mean, there's a, they're just completely different in how they view their obligation to the public and their role within the Department of Justice. Um, you know, Bob Mueller is not about public spin and giving his personal assessment untethered to the facts. Um, and his sort of personal shyness and being apolitical, I think served the FBI incredibly well during 12 years. He really, you know, with the FBI, you're always being attacked by one side or the other or both sides. And it's really important to keep your head down and to yeah. be very tethered to the facts and the law. And one of the reasons prior to his being the special counsel, he was so revered within the department and in Congress and in the White House was because you knew you were dealing with a straight shooter. Um, unfortunately, yeah. I really don't think you can say that about Bill Barr, that he is not somebody who is dispassionate about looking at the facts. No, and the evidence doesn't say that. Uh, Andrew Weissman, thank you. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, another Trump ally is going to either be disbarred or possibly go to jail. Yes, Trump is toxic. He is very, very toxic. And another of his allies shows how stupid she was. Marjorie Taylor Greene said, and I quote, an elementary school in Illinois got $5.1 billion for equity and diversity. Why are they scared of equity and diversity? Check this out. So, Mr. Dodaro, if you don't mind answering a few of my questions, um, can you tell me, as our comptroller of the United States, how much uh, COVID cash was given to abortion? Oh, okay. So I do. I can tell you, Planned Parenthood clinics received eighty billion in COVID relief loans, um, which is hard to understand how that happened. Um, Mr. Dodaro, can you tell me how much money COVID cash went towards diversity, equity, and inclusion, or racism issues? Again, I we have not looked at that issue, so I don't know. Oh, geez. Well, I can tell you the Pennsylvania Humanities Council did receive $1.4 in relief and used it for equity and geographic diversity. Uh, I'm not sure how that helped in, in a pandemic time. Um, Mr. Dodaro, can you tell me uh, how, much, how much COVID cash went to CRT? CRT? 
critical race theory in education. It's, it's a racist uh, uh, curriculum used to teach children uh, that somehow their white skin is not equal to black skin and other things in education. Yeah. Uh, no, I do not know that. But I, I do know that there's f provisions that the uh, federal funds generally are not used, they're supposed to be used for curriculum. Oh, that's a state. Oh, Mr. Dodaro, I have to tell you, in Illinois, that they, they receive five point one billion um, at at an elementary school there that that used it for equity and diversity. Um, so it's it's being used for these things. Uh, Mr. Dodaro, can you tell me how much money was given to Drag Queen Story Hour? Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Who? Drag Queen Story Time, where where men dress up as uh, uh, women and, and read confusing uh, books to children. Yeah. First, I thought you said dry clean. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I don't know the answer to either one of those two. Uh, oh, we need to look into this, and I, I urge you to do that. Um, they, uh, Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center in Pennsylvania received $16,000 uh, for drag queen story time uh, from, from COVID cash. Um, I think this is an issue that needs to be looked into. A lot of this money went to things that it should have never gone to. And I thank you so much, and I yield back. Is she really that stupid? So you telling me they went through the list, and they they looked at all the places that went through COVID, and picked the ones that picked the ones that just had um. LBGT or or CRT and they're going to make it up as they go along. So that's what they did. She's really, really stupid. But I don't understand why but she did. Alright, check us out. Think this is an issue that needs to be looked into. A lot of this money went to things that it should have never gone to. And I thank you so much, and I yield back the remainder of my time. So here's why what we just saw was so important. Not just because Marjorie Taylor Greene made herself look like a clown, although that's certainly worthwhile, but because the Controller General for the Government Accountability Office, Jean Dodaro, had no fucking clue what she was talking about. And it's a really, really good reminder that when you take these Republicans out of their Fox News rabbit holes and put them in front of people who aren't mainlining Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, no one in this country has the slightest clue what these people are talking about. And if you pay attention to politics, you might forget that because we're exposed to this bullshit on a daily basis and the Overton window shifts and it all becomes normalized for us. But if you're just a regular American out there and if you come into contact with one of these Republicans, my God, they sure do sound like lunatics, don't they? So I get that Marjorie Taylor Greene thought that she was using her time during this oversight committee hearing to score some major political points and gin up some excitement, but all she did was put on full display how extreme and insane she actually sounds. This dude was more confused than when a 13-year-old tries to explain to their grandparents what Snapchat filters are. The only difference being that Snapchat filters are fun, and the conspiracy theories that Greene is spouting are probably cause for someone to suggest their relatives seek some professional help. 
And just on some specific points here, Green asks how much COVID cash went to CRT, which is essentially just Republican Mad Libs at this point. I'm not sure how much CRT costs, but I can't imagine it would be much considering it's a theory and not a thing. Although, with that said, Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to be under the impression that individual elementary schools are being allocated not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, not millions, but billions per school for this curriculum. Oh. That's a state. Oh, Mr. Dodaro, I have to tell you, in Illinois, that they receive $5.1 billion um, at, at an elementary school there that, that used it for equity and diversity. And here I was thinking that education was underfunded. Didn't realize that even elementary schools had budgets into the billions of dollars for just one program alone. Of course, the ultimate irony here is that no secondary schools teach critical race theory because it's not taught in secondary schools. Your eight-year-old is learning how to count by twos. They're not delving into the ways that law intersects with race. I mean, my God, have any of these people ever come into contact with a child? If you can get a third grader to tell left from right, that's a win. I can assure you they are not examining the social, cultural, and legal issues as they relate to race and racism. And anyone who thinks that they are is a moron. Looking at you, Marjorie Green, and just as a quick aside, because it really isn't worth it to humor this idiocy, CRT doesn't actually mean anything to these people. It's just some nebulous catch-all term that they found to describe learning about race. But if they can attack a scary-sounding name and make it seem like kids are being indoctrinated, they can vilify the very concept of any race-based education. But why would conservatives not want children to learn about race? To pretend that their own sordid history surrounding race doesn't exist. They know that they can't afford to alienate those white supremacists and outright racists that have so vocally ingratiated themselves into the Republican base. And so instead, their plan is to deny the very existence of their actions. And if, by chance, a student does learn about our past, well, then it's not history so much as it's teaching our children to be guilty of who they are. Because apparently, as far as Republicans are concerned, students are not capable of learning about something without internalizing all of it and blaming themselves. Does that make sense? No? Didn't think so. But again, all of this is moot because the only people even taught critical race theory are graduate law students. That's it. Your kid is not learning CRT in elementary school or middle school or high school or undergrad in college or even grad school unless they're getting a law degree. So I'm pretty sure there's as much likelihood of your nine-year-old being indoctrinated with critical race theory as them learning corporate income tax law. But moving on from CRT, Green then pivots over to the next iteration of anti-LGBT culture war, and that's to attack drag queens. She asks Dodaro how much money was given to Drag Queen Story Hour, and to illustrate the extent to which he has no clue what the fuck she's talking about, he literally explains that he thought she was talking about dry cleaning. Why? Well, probably because he's not mainlining Tucker Carlson and doesn't spend any time of his life pretending to worry about Drag Queen Story Hour. And at this point, you can actually almost feel the embarrassment from Green, who offers the most tepid request to look into it before immediately wrapping up her line of questioning. Oh, we need to look into this, and I, I urge you to do that. Um, they, uh, Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center in Pennsylvania received $16,000. The fucking community center. Damn. Uh, for drag queen story time uh, from, from COVID cash. Um, I think this is an issue that needs to be looked into. A lot of this money went to things that it should have never gone to. And I thank you so much, and I yield back the remainder of my time. I guess it's one thing to tweet to your already brainwormed audience the usual fear-mongering about drag queens, and something entirely different to say it out loud to a normal human being who doesn't traffic in manufactured right-wing outrage. And just one note on this whole drag queen thing, 
Drag shows are fantastic. I have been to more than I can count. No one doesn't have fun at a drag show. And no, for the lunatic conspiracy theorists out there, kids do not get groomed or abused or sexualized at drag shows. But I'll tell you what, I can't say the same about the church. So if you're really serious about protecting children, let's have a conversation once you've called for the dissolution of the church. Until then, spare us the faux outrage. So will Marjorie Taylor Greene ease up on the insane conspiracy theories? No. But at this point, knowing how much of a fool she makes herself out to be by doing it, I'm not even complaining. Voters have spent the last three cycles rejecting Republican extremism. So if Republicans want to continue doubling down, who am I to stop them? Yeah, they're going to double down for two more fucking years. This shit's annoying. And again, why do Republicans vote against their own interests? I do not understand this. Yes, Republicans... Republicans are a tight-knit wad because they fucking crazy because the people they sent to Washington and the, and the people who the shit they ring up on the floor time to time if you want to laugh just go ahead and listen to C-SPAN just listen to C-SPAN for one day alright this is this is Dwayne Otley and this is the Common Sense Party Pod rate us, review us, like us, follow us send us feedback uh you can reach us at the common sense party pod at gmail.com instagram and we're also on tiktok uh rate us please give us five stars give us four stars give us three stars give us two stars even give us one star so if you just don't give us any stars i just assume that we're doing it right all right we're at the point in the show where you can promote your product your application your app whatever you're hawking to the public you can go in and put it at this point of the show please give us a ring at common sense party pod at gmail.com so we can set up your promotion as soon as possible and now we're gonna go to that fucker george santos uh he got I think he got snappy at some conservative reporter. Check it out. Again, the media is telling us all to focus on the money. Follow the money. Your campaign finances. It's a matter of public record that you stated that it was a personal loan that funded your campaign. But then that was later retracted. Can you explain where that $700,000 came from? Simply put, I own a business. My business generates revenue through legitimate practices of capital introduction, uh, 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 introduction for business uh, in, in the sort of purchase agreements and so on and so forth. I am the sole proprietor. I disperse my, my, my dividends to myself. And I use my own funds that I've obtained by working to fund my campaign. Why was that box then later unchecked? That is an ongoing investigation. We are looking into it because we've had some activity on the campaign side that was unauthorized by the campaign, and that is now being investigated by my new, by my new campaign team, by our legal team. And in, in, in order to respect the, the integrity of the investigation, I won't be touched. Okay. Line 101, when you stutter, you know what that shows? You're thinking on your feet. 
So when you stammer and stutter, um, it makes you out to be a liar. ...into details of what transpired there, because I don't even know. As you can imagine, the American people has now been led to believe that George Santos goes in there and edits his own financial stuff and does his own FEC. You hire fiduciaries. He's telling on himself. He's telling you it. He's telling you what he did on live TV. Take care of that. So, of course, we'll, we'll say this. You do not file. You don't handle your own FEC filing. No. But you, you must know where that money was coming from. If it was legally obtained. Well, the, the money was legally obtained. When it pertains to my loans, they came from my personal money to the campaign. The changes on the filings were done without my authorization, without any knowledge to my campaign. So you are still standing by those were personal loans? Absolutely. What an incoherent hodgepodge of bullshit. I'm sorry, but you could put a five-year-old whose face is covered in chocolate in front of me telling me that they didn't eat any cookies, and I'd still be more likely to believe that than whatever it was that George Santos just spewed during that interview. And look, to be fair, I'm not saying that he's lying, but also this is pretty much what it would sound like if he was lying. So here's the deal. At issue here are three personal contributions that George Santos claimed to have loaned his campaign. An initial loan of $80,000, followed by $500,000 in March of 2022, and another $125,000 in October of 2022. So just over $700,000 in total. Rumored to be given to by a Russian oligarch. His campaign then filed 10 amended reports, which is an unusually high number of amendments, including unchecking a box indicating that those loans came from his own personal funds, which left everyone wondering, where did that money come from? Did some dark money source give that money to Santos, which he then claimed was his own money that he loaned himself? If so, that would be illegal. Did he take that money from his own company? That would be illegal, since a corporation can't just fund a campaign. So you see why it's important to know the origin of that $700,000, because that could be the difference between an indictment for campaign finance violations or not. And by the way, that's not the only issue with his finances. The Santos campaign expenditure filings show 37 expenditures for the exact same amount, $199.99, which just so happens to be exactly one penny below the dollar figure, above which the FEC requires campaigns to keep receipts. Those expenditures are for Uber, Walgreens, Walmart, Best Buy, Delta Airlines, and more. And look, maybe it just so happens that Santos had a coincidental pension for spending exactly one penny below $200, or he was very sloppily and very lazily skirting FEC requirements to purposefully break the rules. But hey, if anyone deserves the benefit of the doubt, it's probably the guy who claimed that his own mother died on at least two separate occasions. So now, with that said, let's dig into what Santos said during this interview. First off, take a moment to listen to this explanation of George Santos's business. My business generates revenue through legitimate practices of capital introduction, uh, 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 introduction for business uh, in, in the sort of purchase agreements and so on and so forth. You see, my business through businessing generates revenue through the introduction of business and related concepts and ideas which go through the process of sales and purchases and so on and so forth and whatnot. Ergo, that's how business works. And look, I've bullshitted my way through some financial accounting courses in my day, so I know what it sounds like and that explanation by George Santos is what it sounds like. But okay, in fairness, Santos goes on to explain that his corporation generates revenue, and as the sole employee in his company, he disperses dividends to himself, which then become his personal funds, and he used those personal funds to loan to his campaign. Okay, fine. 
In theory, that makes sense. But then, as the interviewer asks, why was that box then unchecked? If the money was, simply put, a loan from George Santos to George Santos' campaign, then why amend the filing and uncheck the box that denotes the loan was a personal donation? And this was his answer. That is an ongoing investigation. We are looking into it because we've had some activity on the campaign side that was unauthorized by the campaign, and that is now being investigated by my new, by my new campaign team. I'm sorry, but what? That's what's being investigated? It was either a personal donation or it wasn't a personal donation. And look, I'm not a campaign finance expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think it's being unfair by saying that this is a pretty simple issue. If George Santos loaned his own campaign money, then it's a pretty simple decision as to whether or not to check the box that literally denotes whether or not he loaned his own campaign money. But hey, again, I'm no business genius who deals with capital introduction and introduction to business like George Santos is, so... What do I know? By the end of the interview, Santos eventually does say that he stands by this idea that the $700,000 loan to the campaign were personal loans, which kind of implies by Santos that the real issue at hand here is how those FEC filings were amended. I guess he's trying to convince us that that's the real scandal, that someone improperly amended those forms when they shouldn't have. But again, if things are exactly as Santos is making them out to be, and if those loans were indeed personal loans from himself to his campaign, then why amend them at all in the first place? Again, I'm not an expert in this, so this may be unfairly reductive, but something just really isn't adding up. And of course, conveniently, Santos precludes himself from discussing it by saying that he doesn't want to go into more detail so as not to interfere in an ongoing investigation. But I would argue that at this point, it doesn't really matter what George Santos says because the ball doesn't really seem to be even in his court. At the end of January, the Justice Department asked the FEC to hold off on any enforcement action against Santos, which is as clear a signal as you could possibly find that the DOJ has opened a criminal investigation into him. The FEC will regularly comply with DOJ requests to hold off on enforcement, given that the FEC is a civil agency and they're not looking to complicate the Department of Justice's active criminal cases. But what's especially stunning is that this isn't even the only legal issue that George Santos is contending with right now. He's also being scrutinized by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, regarding his role in Harbor City Capital, which was an investment firm that was shut down in 2021 for operating as a Ponzi scheme that raised over 17 million bucks from more than 100 victims. And while Santos himself wasn't named in the lawsuit against Harbor City, he did work for the firm at the same time its assets were frozen, and he's believed to have been among those soliciting investments for the firm. I mean, my God, this guy is like a walking smoke signal for fraud. And of course, this is on top of the nonstop barrage of press that he's getting amid the daily deluge of discoveries, including the fact that he lied about being Jewish, that he worked at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, that he was a landlord, that he employed victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting, that his mother died on 9-11, and that she also died 15 years later of 9-11 related causes, before we ultimately found out that she wasn't even in the United States on 9-11, that he stole funds intended for a dying dog using GoFundMe, that he dressed in drag in Brazil after saying that he didn't, that he posted an anti-Semitic and racist screen on Facebook, all of which is to say, George Santos hasn't exactly positioned himself as a trustworthy source here. And I teamed up with former Obama staffer Tommy Vitor to create the definitive ranking of all of George Santos' lies in one of my favorite YouTube videos ever. So to watch that video, click the link right here on this screen. So we'll see what happens with this whole campaign finance debacle. But if Santos' recent past is any indication, things are probably going to get worse for him before they get any better. Yep. He is a liar, and he won't be kicked out of office unless they arrest him. Because Kevin 
Kevin, whatever his name, McCarthy, needs his vote. And that's why that's happening. All right, moving on. The college board goddamn caved to Santos. They shouldn't have caved. That shit's annoying. Um, they changed, they took out a lot of stuff from the AP course so they can do it in Florida. So check us out. Across the red states with Florida and its governor, Ron DeSantis, acting as the tip of the spear, mandating education on the glories of Western civilization and outlawing studies in African-American history infusing religious doctrine into public school education by stacking school boards and college administrations while purging those institutions of liberal educators and administrators, silencing librarians and instructors with the threat of incarceration and banning books that might give students at the K through 12 or even at the collegiate level a glimpse at inconvenient historical facts and diversity. It is an American version of communist China's cultural revolution or the decades of memory purges in the USSR. The American right is trying to impose its Christian nationalist fascistic doctrine on you and your kids, whether you want it or not. And they won't be satisfied to just do it in red states. Just look at where they're going with their abortion bans. That is the war we're facing. But we don't have to cede this ground. We can fight for the facts. And the first day of Black History Month seems as good a day as any to start. And joining me now is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and author of several books, including How to Be a Young Anti-Racist. Uh, Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to put up some of the most banned books in the country, and your book is among them. Um, but it, it, what we're seeing right now is a war on knowledge of ourselves. And I wonder what you make of the... All right, for the podcasting audience, the names of the books that are being banned are Gender Queer, the the hate, the hate you give, Lawn Boy, the Absolute Truth Diary of a Part Time Indian, Me Earl and the Dying Girl, The Bluest Eye, Outside of Darkness, All Boys Aren't Blue. The idea that just knowing the history that I just mentioned is illegal in states like Florida. Well, what I, what I make of it is is actually something that DeSantis recently stated to explain why he's overhauling uh, Florida's higher education system. He, he's, he's opposing programs that he stated uh, provoke political activism. Uh, he says that's not appropriate in the state of Florida. And, and then he's, of course, supporting programs that seem to me to be provoking political compliance, uh, programs that seem to be uh, provoking uh, people to uh, attack or despise people who don't look like them, or even people who do look like them and who are trying to just get home. What do you make of the, what I would consider to be the abject cowardice, to be honest, of the College Board, which claimed in a statement that their decision to alter their course in African-American studies um, was not made due to political pressure. They said this was a long-standing course that no one had seen and that this decision was made outside of politics. And yet, they have taken away any uh, part of the, the, the course material that would be involved in the tests, the AP tests, 
that involved contemporary topics like Black Lives Matter, affirmative action, queer life, and reparations. Those are now out. Many black writers and scholars, including Kimberly Crenshaw, is out. Roderick Ferguson, who does writes about queer social movements. Ta-Nehisi Coates, the esteemed writer for The Atlantic, who's written about reparations. And Bell Hooks, who writes about race, feminism, and class. This is what... Um, it, it, to me, it seems shocking to do that. Kimberly Crenshaw made the point that, you know, African-American history is not just about men. Uh, it's also about black people, queer people, all sorts of people. Um, she's made this point that it was stunning to say that you can't even read about these other people. Your thoughts? I mean, I, I agree with, with, with Kimberly Crenshaw. And, and indeed, you, you can't understand uh, black history if you don't understand black feminism. You, you can't understand black history if you don't understand queer theory. There are black people who are queer. You, you can't understand uh, black history if you don't have a critical understanding of, of, of race. You, 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 you can't understand it. And indeed, that's the purpose. And so I, I think that it was shocking that the college board, which imagines itself as seeking to promote uh, higher learning, seeking to promote critical thinking, would think that we're so stupid <laughs> that, that, that they haven't bowed down the political pressure. Yeah, they fucking caved. That bullshit is just annoying. College education is for free thought. We are supposed to teach our young people that we all can get along. But if we do not teach what we what happened in the past, we're doomed to repeat it. And they, that's what they want. They want that to be repeated where minorities are on the lower edge and they keep their power but we gotta we as citizens need to reach one teach one anyone over the age of 35 i would say 35 please educate these young people on voting history especially in florida don't let it die because that dude is running for president and that shit's annoying all right. Moving on to guess what? The debt ceiling. But what we're gonna do is gonna talk about the jobs report. Check it out. Oh wow, whoever took the over, congratulations. Five hundred and seventeen thousand. Five hundred and seventeen thousand non-farm payrolls. A blast off of a number. That's the highest number since February of 22 when it was 714,000. If you look at manufacturing payrolls, they were 19,000, three times expectations. Unemployment rate, 3.4. We crashed the half century barrier. A new post cycle low. That is unreal when you think about it. And average hourly earnings month over month up three-tenths, which matches last month, which matches October, which matches August, which matches April. We've had a lot of three-tenths. That's pretty much the low watermark until you get to March, where it was only up one-tenth in January. That's 21. In January 21, when it was unchanged. If you look at year-over-year, year, a bit of a different story. 4.4%. Not too bad. Sequentially, at least for the moment, following 46 and when you look at 4.4% on average hourly earnings, that actually is the lightest going all the way back to August of 21. August of 21, where it was 4.3. If you look at the work week, 
Uh, work week came in at 34.7. Uh, 34.3 is the low watermark. 34.7 actually ramps us up to the highest since February of last year. That is a big jump, something to pay attention to. And finally, labor force participation rate, also pretty good news, 62.4. 62.4 actually equals the high watermark, uh, which was March at 62.4. Uh, that's really good news. The January jobs report was just released, and whereas it was predicted that about 188,000 jobs would be added, the U.S. economy instead added a staggering 517,000 jobs, bringing the total jobs added in the first two years of Biden's presidency to 12.1 million. Not only the most jobs ever added in the first two years of a presidential term, but more jobs than have been added even in a four-year term, meaning that in just two years, Biden did what no other president could do in four. Of those 12.1 million jobs, 800,000 were manufacturing jobs, spurred by legislation passed by Democrats to bring jobs back to America. And companies have responded with an avalanche of investment, including companies like Toyota, First Solar, Sparks, Corning, LG, Honda, Micron, Qualcomm, and Intel, just to name a few. Just those companies alone will be responsible for investments of hundreds of billions of dollars and tens of thousands of new jobs. Kind of crazy what happens when you prioritize renewable energy and green jobs over protecting the dwindling 59,000 jobs left in coal. Almost like doing the bidding of fossil fuel companies only actually helps the bottom lines of those politicians in their re-election campaigns and not the actual people who live in this country. Facts. But here's the funny part. You gotta, you gotta check out what Fox News did. The January jobs report just released. The U.S. adding 517,000 jobs last month. That is much stronger than economists expected. They thought 185,000. Unemployment drops to 3.4. That's the lowest since 1969. Wow. Uh, meanwhile, this story uh, of... For the podcasting audience, if you could see their faces. It looks like somebody stole their joy because Joe Biden... Did it again. Again, he did better than Trump did in four, in two years. Those two years. And what Trump could do in four. And they had the House, the Senate, and the presidency. So in two years with just, uh, they had, they had all three. Uh, he put 12 million jobs, so, uh... I'm just saying, people, the economy does much better under non-greedy Democrats, no matter what you say. Look at the facts. We make more money when the people of the United States make more money when a Democrat is in the office and he has help from Congress. So, job reports came out. And now, a spy balloon. Major General David Fraser, CTV military analyst, to get his thoughts on this balloon. General Fraser, good to see you. What do you think? Well, Todd, it's good to be with you. And I think, uh, simplistically, this is a gift to the, uh, the American political system uh, to go after the Chinese in a way that the Chinese can't respond. Uh, it is a balloon uh, that surveys probably weather as opposed to military because... There's no way that the Chinese could have put a balloon up to get over a missile site when it's not tethered to anything and you can't control it. So it just happens to violate uh, U.S. airspace. It has a surveillance capability, and but probably not the type of surveillance capability the Chinese would have used to go after a missile site. So 
this, quite frankly, is a political coup for the Americans and a black eye for the Chinese at, at a time when the Chinese don't need it. And the fact that Blinken has postponed his visit, uh, the Americans are making hay. What do you think happened here, or may have happened here, General Fraser? Well, from the pictures that we're uh, that we're seeing right now, and and you know, by all intents and purposes, it probably was a balloon that got out of control that just drifted into uh, North American airspace. Uh, it was at the worst possible time for the Chinese. It probably was doing some sort of weather surveillance or something else. Uh, probably not military. The fact that it's still flying up there, it's no military threat because the U.S. would have shot it down or brought it down if it was a military threat, specifically uh, going after if it was going after a missile site. But the fact that it's still up there, they're not worried about it, and they're just waiting for it to come down and collect whatever is off it. And uh, probably after they analyze it, send it back with the Chinese saying that, uh, little thank you. Uh, the other question that some are asking is why doesn't the U.S. military intervene and uh, you know blow it out of the sky, General Fraser? Simplistically, if it was a threat, uh, either a military threat or a threat to civilians, it would have actually they would have actually gotten rid of it. The fact that it's up there, it's not a threat to any uh, air traffic. It they fly about you know 25, 20, uh, 30,000 feet. Military planes fly around sixty thousand feet. This is well above that, so. Uh, it's not a threat to anything, and therefore, uh, the only thing it's a threat to is the political stability between the U.S. and China, and the uh, U.S. is very upset with the Chinese for allowing this, this to happen, uh, but the fact that it's still floating, it's no threat to anyone. Tell me about the optics, though, this creates for China. Huge, huge issue for optics for the Chinese. Uh the fact that, you know, whatever the reason this balloon was floating, it has now become a international political issue. And this is something the Chinese can't do anything about. They can't control. They can't bring it back. It's out of their control. Uh, the Americans are un- upset about it. The Canadians are upset about it because it went through our airspace. And it's a big political issue. And given with what's going on in Ukraine and elsewhere around the world, the Chinese don't need any more aggravation. And they just put their foot into it. Uh, they've jumped into this one lock, stock, and barrel, and whoever launched this balloon is probably not having tea with their bosses. <laughs> one last question has to do with the uh, Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State. He's going to be coming out here momentarily. Uh, he has postponed his trip to China. The implications of that, General Fraser, what do you think? Well, I think it's political posturing. I think right now uh, Blinken, who was going to go there, uh, he probably now has a lot more leverage when he he does he will go to the Chinese and, and talk to his counterpart. But he's got a lot more leverage now when he sits down with them to discuss what are, uh, the agenda the Americans have with South China Seas, what they're going to be doing in the Philippines and whatnot. So this is all bodes well for Blinken's visit. Uh, it's it's posturing. It's just really bad news for the Chinese, and there's nothing they can do about it. General Fraser, appreciate you taking the time, gaining the insights and your expertise. Thank you. And that's what the Canadians are saying about it. Yes, there was a spy balloon that that was let go. Is it let go? Is let go the term? I think let go is the term where they where they let it go all the way from China. It crossed to Canada, and it went across. The United States. We have our, our early warning system uh, called NORAD. So the military did know about it. So don't let nobody say, don't let them 
fool you into thinking that we weren't prepared. I think we were. It just what it was was a weather balloon, but it did spy. So uh, it shot down. So we're gonna find out what it was. All right. It now it's VI history time. So let's hear what Miss Gabrielle is saying today. Cypher heritage is very important to me. In fact, it's been a focal part on a few of the videos that I put up on my page. I've spoken about the history, I've celebrated some of the successes, the talents, the hard work that the French people in this community have put in. But I have aspects of this community that you wouldn't know unless you actually exist within its spaces. And one of those that is never spoken about outwardly is the clear division between Frenchtown Frenchies and Northside Frenchies. I wanted to understand why this division was there. My mother is from Frenchtown, my father is from Northside, and as somebody who has witnessed and been the collateral damage of the divisiveness within the both communities, I needed to know. And so I set out on a journey to figure out the origins of this division. I've read a lot of articles, I've gone through a lot of Virgin Islands history textbooks, and I've spoken to elders from both sides of both communities. And this is what I found. While both Northside Frenchies and French-owned Frenchies for the most part originated from the island of St. Barts, which is only nine square miles, it seems like they come from two different parts of France. This would explain why there are obvious differences in their dialects and the type of French that they speak. St. Barts in general is actually very diverse in its language. While the main language is French, there are so many different variations of the type of French that's spoken there. The Northside Frenchies speak something like an Antillean French. This is a more archaic West Indian French that you can find on islands like Dominica, Martinique, Grenada. Whereas the French Town Frenchies speak a more traditional French Creole. There are also physical differences between the two groups. French Town Frenchies are typically a little bit shorter and a little bit smaller in stature, whereas the Northside Frenchies tend to be taller and more heavier built. After coming through the research, it became very evident that classism sat at the epicenter of the division between both groups of people. At one point in history, the division between the two groups were so bad that it was actually worse to intermarry between the two groups than it was to like go out into the community and marry people outside of the culture. Even up to now, there's a little bit of a taboo between a Northside Frenchie and a French Town Frenchie getting married. And while the divisions between these two communities seems to have diminished quite a bit, there are still some implications that rear its ugly head to today. For instance, some of the Frenchies in French Town don't go to Northside Frenchie events and vice versa. Not to mention, some of the derogatory terms that are used to identify each group is still used in circulation today. This is unfortunate because while this division was something that was created and fostered by older generations, it's very sad to see young people take part in it. During the time that this division was forming, classism was a huge part of our Caribbean community in general. Classism still plays a vital role in the way things are done here in St. Thomas. And people's perceptions of certain last names or certain areas that you grew up in, certain places your family from. But I feel like as a younger generation, we have a responsibility to eradicate and condemn a lot of these beliefs and behaviors. When you know better, you're supposed to do better. And all of us within the French community have a responsibility to heal the destruction that has been caused here. My French heritage is very... Yep. Thank you. That is a little VI history. All right. This is your host, Dwayne Otley. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Rate us, review us, follow, comment, feedback. Give us feedback so we know what we're doing. Uh, this is a podcast that we use our common sense in everyday political usage, we are available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Pandora, Google Podcast, TuneIn, and we're still working on Apple. You can reach us at the Common Sense Pod 
at gmail.com. We're also available on Instagram and TikTok. So this is your host signing out for the day. Check you out next week.